This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America, the smart choice for ID implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant 18013-5, and surpasses AMVA guidelines. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AmvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the AMVA community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AmvaCast, everyone. This week, I have Deborah Coffey from Smart Start. Deborah, welcome to your first appearance on the AmvaCast. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Ian. I really appreciate it. We, we invited Deborah this week, um, Smart Start, and then a, an organization that Deborah is involved in that we'll talk about, the Coalition of Ignition Interlock Manufacturers, has been a key partner in the, I would say, the nation's fight against in, impaired driving. But Smart Start in particular is celebrating a, a pretty big anniversary this year. We tell, are. Us about, tell us about that, Deborah. So we're very excited. Uh, We um, were excited to celebrate our 30th anniversary on December the 2nd and marking just an important milestone in our history and we believe in the world's efforts to fight drunk driving. And uh, it we were founded 30 years ago by um, some entrepreneurs. Uh, Jay and Betty uh, Rogers, who had a ranch hand, who had a drinking problem and had been convicted of DWI. So they were looking for uh, an, something uh, that would be able to keep him from driving drunk. And uh, they were very innovative and uh, set their sights on ignition interlock technology to help uh, their ranch hand uh, not be driving drunk. That, that's a fascinating origin story that I don't think I, I really knew about. So tell me a little bit more. If, if you know about that in those early days, they did this because they wanted to help him. They thought there was a better, safer way to do it. Certainly there were not, in the early 90s, there were not ignition interlock laws. There weren't laws and there really wasn't technology. So um, they were uh, just very innovative, uh, seeing and witnessing the struggle that their employee, their ranch hand had had, that they were just determined that they were going to find a technology. They thought there had to be some technology Mm -hmm. out there. Like I said, they were entrepreneurs and were very innovative themselves. And um, so they just, uh, and you can imagine this was 30 years ago when we didn't have a lot of internet and Google search access. So they just uh, kept uh, searching and just felt like they had, there had to be a technology. There had to be Mm -hmm. something that could keep the car from starting. So uh, they landed on the technology of ignition interlock, which was very uh, new, not as the advanced technology that Mm -hmm. we know of today. And uh, just through uh, years of innovation and us working on the technology uh, through the company, we've uh, advanced to uh, where we are and what what you're familiar with in the ignition interlock industry right now. Yeah. And what would be some of those key differences when you look at what the, the technology itself was 30 years ago versus today? On some hand, I'd imagine it's fundamentally the same where someone is blowing into the device it's calculating the, the blood alcohol level to determine whether the car can start or not. I know I am oversimplifying that tremendously, but you know, I, 
fundamentally it's going to do the same thing. So tell me about how the technology has evolved in those 30 years. So what I um, what brought me to Smart Start was that, and I've been with the company, I just celebrated my own milestone of having been with the company going on 25 years. And prior to that, I was a court administrator and worked in the court mm. system and worked for judges who were starting to order the ignition interlock, but we had no mandatory mm -hmm. law, sure. mandatory laws. And they were just ordering it uh, more so on some repeat offenders. So one of the, um, our, the, our founders, it was very important to them that the industry have standards. Mm. And they were uh, just before their time in thinking that the, that the technology needed to be improved it needed to have standardized anti-circumvention features, that um, it needed to uh, collect data, and it needed to report information to the authorities that were going to need to monitor this. And uh, I was looking back on some of our founding documents and some of the, um, the items that they were focusing on uh, as to what they wanted to do uh, uh, for the company and what they thought that the company should stand for. And um, those things, uh, such as data, uh, collecting data, mm -hmm. having standards for the industry, those were 30 years ago was their mission statement mm -hmm. and what they wanted to bring forward uh, to the industry back then. So you're right. There've been a lot of advances because when the, when the technology first uh, was out in the, um, in the industry and in the world, it was not specific to alcohol. We didn't have anti-circumvention hmm. features on it. Uh, through the years, there's just been a lot of technological advancements um, that have, have helped the industry. Yeah. So in those early years, you know, if they were creating this technology because of a specific person, and it sounds like, you know, you were obviously 25 years of smart start, you were there in the early days, but you were already, as you say, around it, seeing judges start to order it. How did the, the evolution happen so quickly that 30 years ago, there's a company or two experimenting with this technology before there are laws, there are judges aware of it enough that they are ordering it, you know, on, uh, you know, on folks that have been convicted. How, so, did, how did that, tell me a little bit of that story that you were clearly a part of early on. Thank you. It, it, when I joined Smart Start, we had about eight employees. And uh, when we celebrated our anniversary, we have about 800 employees today. Mm. Uh, we started as a company that was just based in uh, Texas, and mm -hmm. today we're in 48 states, 22 countries, and um, like I said, we have 800 employees, so it's been just a great uh, growth and experience uh, for us to just find some ways uh, to help people and to save lives. We uh, have also advanced not from that just not only having the product of ignition interlock, but we also are in alcohol portable monitoring devices. And uh, so we have some other uh, alcohol uh, 
uh, monitoring devices that help people. But in those early years, uh, my initial uh, position and mm -hmm. job was to educate and inform judges. Mm. And having worked for judges that I knew that judges did not want, I was that gatekeeper that kept vendors out. So we knew <laughs> that the judges uh, did not want to be um, marketed to. Right. Uh, but they were very interested in, uh, in technology. They were interested if you could educate and inform them what the benefits were. And um, it was just uh, getting in front of them and uh, having that conversation. Uh, we had some good research in those early days about the effect that uh, effectiveness of interlock that the effect that it had on reducing alcohol-related crashes and uh, recidivism. Mm -hmm. And um, through the years, uh, we also were able to partner with uh, advocacy groups uh, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Mm -hmm. And um, that we also brought to the industry standards working with the National Highway Traffic Safety uh, mm -hmm. Administration, NHTSA. Mm -hmm. and improving those standards. So mm -hmm. um, I, what I loved most about Smart Start uh, now and in those early years is that they wanted, uh, they wanted proven standards. They wanted uh, technological advances. They wanted uh, data so that we could use that data for research. And they wanted to continue to be innovative Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the years. And then more importantly, I mean, two things. One, that they knew that we had a technology that could make a difference and save lives and keep people from driving drunk. Yeah. And the other was that how important our customers were, that we wanted to help our customers and we wanted them to have an opportunity to be productive, to uh, have a path to sobriety. Mm -hmm. And um, that to do that, we had to give them the best technology and the best customer service that was out there. Yeah. And for those who don't necessarily understand the, the, the marketplace of the ignition interlock, the, the customer is actually the individual. So in the example that you know, you're saying where a judge might order someone to get an ignition interlock, that individual becomes the customer of Smart Start. It's not the, the court that's the customer. It's not the state that's administering the program that's the customer. It's actually that individual. Is that true universally? Yeah, in a way. So I always think that we have a lot of customers. Sure. That we have the customer, you're right, is the end user. And when I joined Smart Start, one of the uh, what I had to learn very quickly is being from the court world for 20 years, I called them offenders because uh, mm -hmm. having been a court administrator, we dealt with offenders. And that was one of the first things that our founders said to me is that they're not offenders to us. They are customers. Mm -hmm. But we also have customers within the, the monitoring authorities, the courts, the attorneys. They're in a way our customer, too, because mm -hmm. we're bringing information to them and yeah. we're bringing uh, reporting information to the courts that we're interpreting that data for them so that they uh, can understand, you know, what it means. And um, so uh, our customers are more than just the end user. Sure. 
So talk to me a little bit about the nexus then of those different customers and one of the fundamental principles of your founders, which was standards. The reason why I asked that is while there's been some successful development of technical standards for the device, um, there are not standards in terms of when an interlock is deployed, right? Different, different jurisdictions have different rules that require someone to get or not get an interlock. Um, and then there's also the piece of the data, which you keep coming back to, which is so important. Um, there is no universal standard in terms of what to do with the data. You can collect the data, but how a monitoring authority might use that data um, is up to each individual authority. And so I'm curious if, as you think of those different customers, both the deployment of the technology and the use of the data, um, if SmartStart, you know, with these three decades of experience, has given some thought about the non-existence of standards in that space when you've been so involved with standards in the, in the other space? I love that question. Thank you for asking <laughs> it because it we think about that all the time. And uh, we do talk to uh, different authorities about that. It's a little bit more difficult um, to uh, talk about uh, to judges and authorities about what to do with the data and how to use uh, the the information that we have to um, to monitor mm -hmm. uh, the their client and our client their customer and um, we have seen uh, every state does something different what happens mm -hmm. in the in the interlock world is that the program is either administrative or judicial or it could mm -hmm. be hybrid Mm -hmm. And judges want to have the discretion to do things their own way. So we did feel like it was very important, whether it was an administrative program or judicial, that we provided them with that data and as much information as possible. What uh, two things that happened to Smart Start early on. One, we were the first company uh, in the industry that offered camera. And uh, the reason that we even got to camera was that we uh, sent out a survey to our Texas judges at the time we were only in Texas and asked them, what, what else do you need with the technology? What else, what, what else do you need from us? And they said, we need to know who took the test. Mm. So we set out to develop a camera and provide them with that information about, well, who exactly took the test? The second thing was that we were the first company that developed a software-driven reporting where we took out the subjectivity of the service center representative in telling the authority or the court or the D DMV whether or not the person was in compliance. We thought mm -hmm. that was very important and it was an important standard within our industry, because we had to take the person out of it, that mm -hmm. it had to be completely software driven. So uh, since we were the first company that developed that software driven, it's a standard throughout the whole industry now. And then as um, computers and web-based applications started, we also all developed web-based applications mm -hmm. to where it was important to us to minimize the time that an authority had to read reports and determine whether or not it was a true violation uh, meeting the standards 
uh, and the requirements of that jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And you're correct when you made the comment uh, that how many jurisdictions there probably are out there with different requirements and they are all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so it's very uh, intensive for us to keep up with um, even a court in an, a county, which could be court by court by court in a mm-hmm. major county that has different requirements, much less a state. So it's always our goal when we talk to uh, uh courts and state regulators that they um that there'd be some uniform guidelines Mm -hmm. and um it's you know still on the wish list that (laughs) we would have some uh uniformity in uh from state to state or jurisdiction to jurisdiction Mm -hmm. on what we report how we report it and um then uh just what the recommendation of what they should do with that data and the mm-hmm. information. Yeah. And is there any, if you, as you make those recommendations, are there any key elements in there or are you, are you advocating for consistency and open to what that consistency is? Or have you discovered through your 30 years of experience that if you're going to have a consistent program, you know, here are some, some key elements, whether it is the requirements that require the device being installed, the frequency that, you know, the test should be taken, um, the, and then in terms of the data levels, you know, what are those flags that say someone is in compliance or, or out of compliance? I mean, you want to take the individual out of saying it, but an individual still has to program the software to say it's compliant or not compliant. Correct. So uh, the industry, uh, and I'd like to mention that I am uh, on the board of directors for the Coalition of Ignition Interlock Manufacturers, and we are a trade association of uh, the industry. And we believe that we're the voice of the ignition interlock industry bringing best practices and model legislation and we uh, providing research and uh, some experience and expertise in ignition interlock. So that is one of the um, uh, one of the the plans that we have that we do try to bring to states Mm -hmm. is that we do have some model Uh, legislation. We have some model program requirements. Uh, We we have best practices within the industry that we bring forward to states and would like to see them adopt. We work, you know, closely with our highway safety um, uh, partners in developing some of those best practices Mm -hmm. and uh, what uh, that should look like. And uh, so we're always, you know, seeking improvement, looking at, you know, what is the standard for a violation? What should um, authorities do when they see that violation and how they should uh, interact with it? And, and speaking of the best practices, you know, Smart Start is uh, the only ignition lock manufacturer that's an associate member of AMVA, which we appreciate. We're very uh, proud of that. We've, I think we've been a long time yes. uh, associate member of AMVA. And the coalition has been involved with AMVA as well. And you directly, you know, you were on our Ignition Interlock Working Group 
first time around, and I know you're going to participate in the, you know, re-spin up of the updated group. Tell me about, you know, how the particular interaction with AMVA um, has allowed the ignition interlock conversation to mature and evolve, particularly within the motor vehicle community. I know you mentioned that some places it's judicial, some places it's administrative. We know in the vast majority of places when it's administrative, it often falls on the DMV's desks to administer. And so how has this connection helped evolve the conversation? Thank you. I'm, I, we are, I've been so uh, proud to sit on that 2018 um, Ignition Interlock Work Group. And I'm the technical advisor on in that 2018 group and have been asked to serve again uh, on the next uh, publication and update to the 2018 uh, 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 pamphlet or publication. And um, it's I do represent the industry on that. So it's not just um, a smart start. Right. Uh, ignition interlock, but it is bringing forward um, all of the ignition interlock industry's uh, best practices and our technology, not specific to any one uh, uh, technology or company, but um, it's an important publication. I have used this publication just in working with agencies across the United States. My role at Smart Start is government affairs, so I interact with state legislators all the time. Mm -hmm. And this is an important publication that I'm able to bring forward to our state legislators when they're looking at model legislation and best practices and how they should uh, write their legislation around uh, the ignition interlock technology. That it's not only was it important to me just in our state legislation, in our state working state legislation, but I've also used this just in working with our state uh, uh, oversight authorities and coming in with them. Not only are they using this document when they're developing their program, most of the states already have an interlock program, mm -hmm. but they need to improve that program and bring best practices and standards because this technology has been ever evolving. Right. And we've evolved into um, with camera. We mm -hmm. have now GPS and real time mm -hmm. uh, monitoring. And there's just a lot of evolution in how to use the technology and the data. And then also another place that I've been able to use this wonderful blueprint for uh, the industry is internationally, hmm. because our company does have an, an international footprint and they are always seeking what is the United States doing in their offender interlock program. And so I'm able to bring forward the AMVA interlock uh, uh, working group uh, mm -hmm. publication and show them, well, here's a organized best practice guide for how you could have an offender interlock program in your country. Most of the countries have, uh, do not have offender interlock programs. They're commercial mm -hmm. in nature. And so this has been an, uh, an important guide for us to be able to share with them too. And I'd like to add one other, um, that a really great benefit 
uh, that the Ignition and Rock work group did was putting together the video mm -hmm. and being able to show the video and show our law enforcement community what to look for during that vehicle stop. Yeah. Uh, has been very educational for them. I've shown it to legislators and uh, it's just a great tool for us to have to be able to get out in front of, you know, our law enforcement and uh, the appreciation that we have for them and the hard work that they're doing on that DWI stop mm -hmm. and what they need to know. Yeah, that's great. I'm really good to hear that. It's always great to hear when our products are being used and shared in ways we're, we don't even know about. So that's that's really awesome. Um, tell me a little bit more about the comparison uh, globally. When you talk to your partners outside of the U.S., I think anecdotally in the highway safety space, we often, you know, are dismayed that the history of the U.S. culture is far more tolerant of impaired driving than other parts of the world and our rates and our fatalities around that unfortunately reflect that reality. So when you have these conversations with other parts of the world, what's, what is their approach to ignition interlocks and impaired driving? Because it seems, again, from an outsider looking in, um, a lot of the rest of the world has a lower tolerance for even allowing impaired driving than we've historically had in the U.S. That's a great question. So they typically, and well, of course, in the United States, we're at 0.08, but we know that our international partners are much lower. Mm -hmm. And in Sweden, it's 0.02. But what we noticed when we first started going into international markets is that their uh, model was in the commercial side. So it's in school buses and the transportation of dangerous goods and uh, taxis. And uh, so we uh, started out in our international market uh, doing in, in, on the commercial side. Mm -hmm. And only slowly but surely have they then started embracing the offender model. Because hmm. on the and, commercial side, they're putting it in as a preventative measure. Right. Even drive the school bus to drive this taxi because you're a commercial driver. Right. We're not even, it's not even a chance to offend, if you will. It's just permission to drive. Right. And if you think about it, just think about the transportation of dangerous goods mm -hmm. like gasoline or, you know, other substances. And it just makes so much sense that they would be concerned about the those people being impaired and the right. travel of those dangerous goods and to, you know, prevent the incidents of, you know, death and drunk driving uh, due to that. So yeah. uh, it's been very interesting. Now, Australia, for, on the other hand, started out in the offender market, Australia, New Zealand. And so they have a very robust offender uh, um, market and offender program on ignition interlock uh, over in Australia, mm -hmm. New Zealand. You mentioned, you know, how we have point. 08 and other places might have a lower like the 0.02 in Sweden. We know Utah now has 0.05 and there's now discussions that other jurisdictions may start entertaining going in that direction. Um, how does that affect or complicate the ability to deploy a standard ignition interlock? So um, it doesn't complicate it at all. Uh, ignition interlock technology, although the, the um, per se level is 0.08, that the interlock device is preset at a different fail level. 
and most jurisdiction uh, throughout the United States have that fail level at 0.02. It is programmable. And so when somebody gets into their ignition interlock uh, car, equipped car, they uh, go in to take a test. If they blow under the 0.02, for example, they can start the car. If they blow over the 0.02, then they won't be able to start the car. And that varies uh, by jurisdiction. Mm. Uh, NHTSA does have, uh, is the overall oversight uh, organization and um, administration for our standards, but every state comes in and layers in uh, their own uh, rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. And uh, another reason that AMVA is such an important partner of the industry is that um, that, that oversight, uh, it varies from state to state. And many mm -hmm. times it does rest in the DMV uh, mm -hmm. of the states. And so partnering and having uh, just information that's provided and us to be able to reach out and have dialogue with those DMVs and the driver's licensing people is very important to us. And many times we have uh, that we're able to have um, that entrance uh, to those uh, DMVs through our partnership with AMVA. So 30 years, you've talked a lot about the evolution of the technology where do, what's next we know where it's come from where it is where, where is it this technology going so um appreciate that question uh we have felt like we've been a leader in technology development starting with our ignition interlock device and we've had many generations of that device uh, going just from a uh, standard interlock to now that we have the addition of camera, we have uh, GPS, we have um, uh, real-time information going to the authorities saying when the violation uh, immediately happened. Mm -hmm. We've been able to develop technology that the uh, the customer doesn't have to come back to the service center as often uh, as they had to, and uh, that the um, that the fuel cell can be uh, uh, taken out and is interchangeable. So we can we've developed a a new interlock that allows for that technology. We have our portable alcohol monitoring technology that we've been able to answer the question, well, what about happens if the person doesn't have a car or what if they need to, um, uh, that they also need to be able to be monitored when they're not in the car. So we have technology now that allows uh, the person to uh, very, uh, uh, to take around a portable device it takes a picture of them, gives a GPS location, provides immediate data to whoever that authority is. And then one of our most recent technological uh, developments that we've uh, brought to the marketplace that we think is very revolutionary for our company is Orbis. And that is a wrist-worn uh, device that does detect alcohol, uh, very similar, looks very much like a smartwatch, mm -hmm. and it will give a GPS location. It's very, it's uh, transdermal. It's a similar to the SCRAM device that 
it goes on the ankle, but this is a wrist worn device and it will detect alcohol, give a GPS location, alert the authority if the person um, has it on, but it is a wearable and it's very discreet. And um, is uh, so we're real excited about uh, bringing that to the marketplace. We'll be doing pilot uh, testing on that uh, with one of our courts in Tarrant County in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, just very uh, excited to bring that innovation to the marketplace. We've always been an innovator at this company. And um, I know that it's, you know, just through bringing the camera to the marketplace and our software driven and our web based, uh, it's just been exciting to bring all these game changing, you know, products. And, you know, for 30 years, I think we've been able to offer a very comprehensive program, uh, not just products, but a program. Well, Deborah, that's uh exciting and it sounds like more exciting things are going to come as you start the the next chapter of the next 30 years and i'd imagine whatever the next chapter of you after celebrating your 25th anniversary which is super exciting well and you know i've been honored to be here for 25 years when we had our um, 30th anniversary we uh, honored 97 employees that have been with the company uh, over 10 years and our employees are the reason for our success that um, this is more than a business, it's a family. And uh, we have, um, it, it's just been a great place yeah. to have a career. I imagine and, with 25 years, yeah. you're, you gotta be up there as one of the more uh, senior uh, members of the 10 year team at Smart Start. That's correct, yeah. I have been. Is, are the founders still uh, around and involved? Or are the they, founders uh... are still, uh, they're, they're not involved in the company uh, anymore. We've uh, been acquired by uh, private equity. Yeah. And uh, we currently are owned by Apollo uh, Impact Global, which we're real excited about this, uh, the acquisition uh, from them last year, because their purpose is to do good in the world and to uh, make a, a footprint and an imprint in making the world a better place. And they saw a great fit for our company in that. Uh, we have a history of, of that same uh, footprint uh, in uh, business mm -hmm. and saving lives. Uh, that is the main focus of our company. Uh, as you can see, you know, from, you know, we've yeah. been in the business of saving lives uh, since 1992. And it's just a great um, uh, emphasis of our business and what we stand for. Wonderful. Well, Deborah, thanks for spending some time with me today to talk about Smart Start, the history of Ignition Interlocks, the history of the, the organization, and look forward to more interactions at AMVA and other highway safety opportunities. And uh, thanks in advance for the work you're about to do on the new working group. Well, I appreciate that. It's been our honor to partner and be an associate member of AMVA and to partner with all the life-saving work that AMVA does uh, and also the work that they do uh, to prevent impaired driving. So we look forward to continuing that partnership and working uh, with AMVA and all of you. That's wonderful. And thank you all for listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire, Jeffrey, and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well.
Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.